Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Elvis, Prince Diana, and Pope John Paul II are undoubtedly still alive today, thanks to their devoted followers who love, admire, and consume them, literally. The Faithful, this is a new film by Annie Berman, a documentary film, which powerfully explores fandom, memorabilia, and the magnetic appeal of three of the most influential cultural icons of our time. The Faithful, this documentary is 20 years in the making. It leads viewers on an emotional journey, leaving them to look inward, reflecting on their own lives and the connection to the people that they cherish. Again, the film is called The Faithful. We're joined today by the director and part of the film as well, Annie Berman. Annie, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. These are big topics. Individually, they would be their own. They could possibly be a, a, a film onto themselves. But I love the way that you have woven into the telling of The Faithful the the way in which we perceive these people, as well as how it plays out in the lives of the people that we see in the film. What inspired? What was it that uh, about these three particular iconic figures, or what was it about your perception of fame and all the rest of it inspired you to move forward with this particular project? You know what? It I really didn't have uh, much of a personal connection, if any, to any of these three icons. Uh, It was 1999 and I was a senior in college and I was studying photography and philosophy of aesthetics and thinking about things like why we photograph at all and what is the meaning of a photograph and how does a photograph reproduced a thousand times that looks all pixelated and and like garbage retain its value. And so I was seeing I was seeing these images of the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II on a trip to Rome, it was my, it was spring break for me and my best friend was studying architecture. I was exploring with a still camera, these relics, these uh, souvenirs uh, that bore the face of Pope John Paul II on ashtrays and snow globes. But what really captured my imagination was this enormous rainbow sized lollipop um, that was for sale at a hot dog stand right outside the Vatican. And, uh, I just thought, is this, uh, <laughs> how does this come to be? How do, how do we get to the point in our culture where we have the Holy Father's face on a lollipop for us to lick and consume? And, and then there was also this idea about the quality of that image and that, you know, was one of these very reproduced images and it didn't seem to matter because for the, those who love this figure, it, it, there's no diminishing of the value of this face, no matter how many times you reproduce it. So, I was shooting a slide film and I thought, oh, maybe what I will do is reproduce this image even further. So I was going to take that and put it through Polaroid transfer onto other surfaces and play with the meaning of that. And I still have that, uh, those negatives, actually, a contact sheet. And what happened was my camera jammed at the instant that I took that photograph and half of that image is not exposed. And it's like this lightly which you know, I call in the film my epiphanic moment, this this discovery of the lollipop. But it it makes it makes one actually think: well, Was this a sign? Why was I chosen by this lollipop to embark on what you know proves to be a really crazy, obsessive journey? Twenty years in the making to understand understand why this lollipop captured my imagination, why it exists at all, 
uh, it raised certain questions for me that just continued to change and evolve over the course of making it. But for whatever reason, at that moment, being how old was I, 20, 21 years old, that image made me think of Elvis Presley, who I also had no personal deep connection to. Uh, and it just happened that it was, I graduated in May and August is the anniversary of his death. And I understood that fans go every year on the anniversary to light candles and um, solemnly proceed up to his gravesite and pay their respects. That drew me there. And I just went on a instinct and with cameras and just been doing that ever since essentially 20 years of filming. Uh, the princess, Diana, she came much later. It was 2000 and, um, oh, I'm forgetting the year. It was her fifth anniversary of her death. And I had heard that a similar phenomenon continued that people did go to Kensington Palace every year and lay flowers and, and post messages. And, and so I wanted to see if there was something equivalent there. I wanna to get to uh, how you landed on those three particular iconic figures. I want to explore that. But this tradition of, you know, fame and it's the connection to um, an audience, to the fan base, really is, a. I think it's a modern phenomenon. I, I go back to uh, the famous actor, Rudolph Valentino, and how people would visit his grave because he died young and he and people, there was a one particular person would, a woman dressed in black would visit his gravesite every year. And this became kind of a thing. And people started to sort of follow suit. The death of Marilyn Monroe, sort of that same sort of sense of the deeper meaning of those people in their lives and how it kind of plays out. I think it's a modern phenomenon. I, I, I don't, I, I don't know if it's because of, you know, film and television and and, and photographs or whatever, th that these people resonate so deeply with us. I mean, we because mass media, we have access to so much more information. But these particular three, the Pope, Pope John Paul II, Princess Diana, and Elvis, is there something that they have in common in your mind? Or is there so or is something that makes each one of them distinctive in the, in the way that people look at them and how they revere them? Mm hmm. Yeah, I was really interested in that moment when a person transcends personhood and becomes an icon. And, and some may argue that can only happen once they die and they're freed from their body and their personhood and they can only be this symbol and, and this icon. But we could see that it started to happen in Elvis's life and he was aware that he was becoming larger than life. And some of the historic rituals that we place on figures like the Pope, where you have the robes and the staff and the artifice, you know, the, um, the, the kind of pomp and circumstance, the, the set design that, you know, it is, he historically is larger than life. He is holier than the rest of us. And this idea that we've always, uh, well, the history of creating saints, I think that there's, that this kind of falls into that history in a secular way uh, for the for the others, that there's somebody we can look to that somehow feels greater than ourselves. But I do think you're right about how media has has facilitated that for us. And I think part of that is we go to movies and we see faces larger than life. You know, they are very large in scale, faces on a billboard and all of these things. I mean, now it's not enough to go to a concert and see a little person on the stage. We have the Videotrons 
that are enlarging them for us. So it's reminding us they're always this very big thing. Even the way we use the word star, you know, there's something celestial, something heavenly about them. And so that is all, all very interesting to me. And, and people would say, well, these aren't equivalent figures because when I started, Pope John Paul II was still alive, you know, and but I, I liked that I got to see this idea of phenomenon in different stages of it. So Elvis had been gone for um, 23 years when I started. And then when I, when I first encountered the Diana world, she had been gone five. And then the Pope was still alive and I was going to events where he was, he was present, World Youth Day in Toronto and Easter's at the Vatican and, and was there for his passage into the next world at his funeral and beatification. I would say that they did have something that made us gravitate to them. It's, it's something hard to define that spark. You know, I, I, I had the privilege of seeing the Dalai Lama in person once getting pretty close to him and it, I saw him have a similar effect on people when he locked eyes with them. It was just that magnetism we were talking about, that charisma, that just energy that's transmitted. And I think that's what shoots straight through people. What I mean, um, Alfred Wertheimer, the, who photographed Elvis when he was 21, so took some of these very iconic photographs and we meet him in the film. He says, anytime you, you meet somebody who has talent singing, uh, makes the girls cry and permits closeness stick with them until you get thrown out. And he, that's what he did, he said. And so, but this idea of making the girls cry, somebody just sent me an article about that, about that phenomenon of this, like people are theorizing about what is that and what, what, what makes girls just scream and cry uncontrollably. And Elvis had that, uh, the Pope has that in some other kind of form. I witnessed a lot of moments that were beyond our control. Mm -hmm. um, there's that other moment that you know I won't reveal too much of, but with the, when the Pope um, is in Easter ceremony and and um, yeah. people just can't control themselves, and I don't judge them for that because there is something so compelling about this person that that the brain kicks off and the the human instincts just innate instincts take over. Want to remind our listeners we're talking with Annie Berman. She is the director of a documentary film called The Faithful. And it is coming out here in Los Angeles at the Lemley Monica Film Center. That's on October 8th. That's Friday. As well as uh, the following Monday at the Lemley, the Glendale, the Royal, New Hall, Claremont 5, a number of, and Playhouse uh, 7 in Pasadena. So be looking for that. You're going to be in town for some Q&As. I um, will, I yeah. Monica Film Center on that Friday, um, mm -hmm. October 8th. And, uh, and as well as on the 11th at the Lemley Playhouse in seven, Playhouse 7 in, in Pasadena. So be looking for that as well. Um, Thank you. Yes, it's the 10th on um, the 10th at the Monica and the 11th at Pasadena. Oh, thank you for correcting. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, the film, you can also go to the-faithful.com to find out more about the film and and all the information. And you also have a blog. I want to point out there, and that's on the website, the official blog for, for the film. I was thinking about the three, Elvis, Princess Diana, and Pope John Paul II. And I'm not quite certain of John Paul II, but the other two are definitely from poorer, from lower classes, economic classes. 
John Paul II also, yeah. That's Poland. He grew up in a in a poor community. I I Mm -hmm. think the case, and I that doesn't always mean that they're more relatable. Doesn't that's not an automatic sense that they are somehow going to connect with people, but it certainly is a big part of the the iconography of of these of all three of these people is that they came from nowhere, somewhere just beyond i mean relatable places we've all we know people we are those people is that a big part of it or is it how does that sort of serve the the bigger picture here well i will note that um the mythology around diana is that she did come from uh nowhere that she just was this school teacher kindergarten teacher who got plucked but you know out of that by Prince Charles, and it was that Disney sort of love story that you can become a princess. Um, but in truth, she was a Spencer, always a Spencer, and um, so they they um, were not commoners by any stretch of the means. Um, but there's still this sense of she was young and living in a flat with three other young people, teaching kindergarten, and very relatable. I think part of that myth story of and, and they're based, embedded in truth, the um, um, Elvis's that he was born into the shotgun shack. You know, yeah. I've seen it in Tupelo, it's in the film. And and visiting that, it is impressive. You know, it's um, connecting with those roots and that this poor boy from Tupelo could make it. And so I think that it's part of that, that American dream. And um, of course it's an international story, but I do, I do think that we gravitate towards vulnerability and um, any sense of humanness. And I think they all gave us that. They did. Um, They showed us who they were. Princess Diana, this isn't in the film, but she would visit AIDS victims and landmines. She would touch the hands of people who others wouldn't. So she made herself very present and very accessible. Elvis stood outside his gates for hours signing autographs. They say that his autograph's not worth as much as other celebrities because he signed so many of them. And Pope John Paul II, he refused to have the bulletproof glass in the Pope mobile. You know, he said, he said, look, the only time I was ever in in jeopardy, my life was uh, at home at the Vatican when he was shot. Um, but he, when he traveled abroad, they always wanted to protect him, and he never felt he needed it. He always wanted to be among the people, including to the very end. You know, he did not give up his position. He was asked if he wanted to retire because he wasn't in great health. He also didn't want to be entombed. He wanted to be in the ground. You know, so this this um, humbleness, I think, is is what we're also calling relatability is yeah. just the sense that, yeah, they were human beings. They were vulnerable. They were fallible. They made mistakes um, and that we could relate to them. One of the wonderful things about the faithful is you're our guide. Much of the film is your perception of the world that we, in, that we see in this film. And when did you make that decision as, as a filmmaker to make yourself such as you know, an important part of the storytelling, and why? Yeah, you know, it came much later into the process. My background was um, in the arts and more experimental film, and I was, I was originally shooting still photographs. And when I started, when I picked up the Super 8 camera, I was really thinking this was a short, and I was juxtaposing different kinds of imagery and 
and making connections that way. I mean, that didn't last that long because I quickly started talking to people and getting really invested in their stories. And so then at that point, it I was crafting a, a film that they were telling. Um, and so I wasn't in it for quite a while. I think I had at least seven cuts of that film. That was a character-driven film that screened in, in places, rough cuts and received feedback and people people liked it. And when they see the film now, they think, wow, you made a completely different film, which I did. But at some point, uh, what had always interested me were these various questions that would come up and the connections between them. And, and it became clear that that story only existed inside my head. And there was never a character I met who could fill in for me. I had thought at one point it was the photographer in the film, Ralph Burns, because he most closely sees the world like I do and had a similar role in it. Um, but then again, wasn't, wasn't going to Diana's birthplace, and, uh, I mean, her death anniversaries and various things. So, so at some point I started writing and I started to incorporate my voice. And since then, because it's been such a long process of working on this film, I've made other films at the same time. And, and that's now become my practice, my voice and writing and, and so I have three short films that, that utilize my voice as well. You have a very nice voice, first of all. It's a beautiful Thank sound you. to it. But it's also kind of a reassuring voice, the way you describe mm -hmm. the things that are um, you're seeing and why it's important. You're pointing out things along the film as, we, as we're watching these stories unfold. And um, I thought you made a great choice. Yeah, glad you did. In making this film, how much of your perception of these people, Princess Diana, Elvis, and Pope John Paul II, how much of it changed? How much of it did you think better, worse of these people as you got to tell their story? How did it change in terms of over this course of 20 years uh, since the beginning of the film to now? Yeah, I think it changed in the way I changed in the way in the way that I think most of us change when we go from our 20s to our 40s, <laughs> getting a sense of the bigger picture, our own mortalities and time on this planet and uh, universe. And so I started with uh, much more of a, as an outsider, uh, interested also in images, which in a way is a sort of superficial and cynical approach to the world. You know, I, I thought it was amusing that you know people did these things that they do. And I, it took me years to get uh, through those layers and into the, the real soul of it, um, which is this effect that uh, they have on, uh, on many people and this idea that we all are looking for something and we find it in, hopefully, in something. Um, and it's for each person, it's something different. There's someone in the film who says it so well about how she thinks we all have a hole in our soul and we're looking for something to fill it. And she says, maybe it seems strange or sad that for her it was Elvis, but he was there and, and that's what did it. And so, yes, I think I think I think the questions and the quest were gradually changing over time. Yeah. Congratulations on the film. Congratulations on The Faithful. Thank you so much. Again, it is opening here in Los Angeles on October 8th, the Lemley Monica Film Center on the 11th at the Lemley Glendale Royal New Hall Claremont Five Playhouse Seven, and you're going to be here to do some Q and A's. 
So it's the 10th at the Monica and then the 11th at the Playhouse 7. Annie Berman, congratulations on The Faithful and look forward to seeing you out here in Southern California soon. Thank you, Mike Caspar. This has been a gift as well. I've really enjoyed sitting down with you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 